0: Thank you, uh, Steph, and thank you guys for being here. How's everybody doing? Good to see you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, if we haven't met before, and uh, thankful for you uh, being here with us. We're halfway through our Advent series, and I now know what I want to call the Advent series, so um, I'm winning in life right now. Um, If I had been forward-thinking, I would have named the Advent series this. The Nightmare Before Christmas. It would have been so clever. We could have done all this cool branding, but um, it took me a couple weeks to recognize this. So today's uh, sermon we'll, we'll call uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I, if, you're, if this is your first week here, it's because this series is pretty dark. It's because Matthew 1 and 2 is very, very dark. And it's only going to get darker. I don't know if that's much of like a, an enticement to come back next week. It's going to get darker, but hopefully better and more hopeful as well. Now let me, uh, before, we, before we kind of dive into the text, let me um, kind of anticipate maybe an objection that some of you are having where almost what you interpret is that um, us talking about this darkness that surrounded the first historical Christmas and us pushing back against cultural Christmas where Christmas is interpreted through the lens of being about kind of this nothing other than this overly sentimental, um, warm, fuzzy, Hallmark movie, hot chocolate uh, experience is almost like you're like, oh, that's a dude that hates Christmas. Um, No, that's not the case, okay? Like, I love Christmas and my heart in trying to be honest about the darkness that surrounded the first Christmas historically is not to downplay or diminish the significance of Christmas, but actually to elevate it. Now, here's what's really key for you to understand, if you're going to understand what it is that Matthew is doing here and the way that he tells the story of the birth of Jesus. Think about this, just in broader culture. It's typically against the backdrop. It's typically in the context of darkness, tragedy, heartbreak, pain, in which our greatest stories of hope and love and impact are told all right it's typically within the context of pain and heartbreak and tragedy in which the greatest stories of love are actually told. So I'll just give you a few examples. It's been like this for a long time uh, as far as fiction. So you go you know, back to Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, you fast forward to modern classics like Harry Potter, you think about the Disney movies many of us were raised in. There's surprising darkness in this. I mean, go back and watch a Disney movie you watched and enjoyed as a kid, and watch as an adult, and I guarantee most of them will stun you at how surprisingly dark they are. I mean, a couple of Saturdays ago, I was making waffles, and the trailer for the new Dumbo movie came out. I don't know why they included this in the trailer, but they did. It got my attention. I guess I'm talking about it, so they win. Okay, you guys won. Um, but but the, the scene, the brutal scene where Dumbo... I just totally forgotten about this. I don't know if I just like, suppressed this memory as a child or what. But like, the, 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 the scene where Dumbo is brutally and tragically torn apart from his mother as like elephant tears are going down his face is shown in this trailer, and everything stops. The the special ingredient for this morning's waffles are dad's tears. I hope you liked those. It's like, man, that is dark, man. That's really, really dark. And this is only as it pertains to fiction. It pertains to nonfiction history as well. You think about in the 1940s, the Allied forces uniting together to push back the Nazi regime as they stormed the beaches of Normandy. You fast forward to the 1960s on streets of long, segregated southern cities that were comfortable with that policy and thought that's the way that things should... Be and individuals marching down those streets holding signs to say I am a man, while the police turned, attack dogs, and uh, water hoses onto them, as if they were something subhuman. From um, from from um, ancient to modern, from fiction to nonfiction, the greatest stories of love and impact and hope are typically told against the backdrop of great tragedy, and that's why Matthew is being so intentional in his opening chapters to talk about how really the environment into which Jesus is born is truly the darkest of days. Uh, It truly is the darkest of days. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, he he described the incarnation um, when Jesus was born and entered into the world in this way. He says, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And what we're going to start seeing this evening is Matthew really showing us the historical context in which uh, Jesus was born, particularly as he tells us about the political regime of the day led by a guy named uh, Herod. And uh, all of this is going to be really, really important. So let me give you a little bit of kind of overview of what we're going to be doing for the next week or so, and then uh, we'll go ahead and dive and get started with it. Really, I think Matthew too, if it was taught best, would be in the context of one big sermon, one big two-and-a-half-hour sermon, but I want you to like me at the end of tonight. So we are not doing that, okay? We're going to do this over a couple of weeks. And uh, We're just going to do the first part now. The first part that we're going to be doing this evening is about 80% about the context in which Jesus was born, the historical context in which Jesus was born. Um, Silence. None of you are excited about that. None of you are like, ooh, that's good. That sounds really good. I love history all right, my job, like a challenge, my job is for you at the end of this to be like, that's good, that's really helpful and hopeful for me. So what I'm going to challenge you to do is really pay attention and engage. This really does matter, not just interesting observations and facts, but also it intersects with our reality and is really meant to impact us and change us as well. And we'll talk about that in about 25 minutes or so. So we're going to take about 80% of our time, talk about the historical context in which Jesus was born, and then we're going to see two reasons this is such good news for us. We're going to see a a big challenge for our lives, and we're going to see a big comfort for our lives as well. So with all that said, we're going to go ahead and uh, dive in, and uh, we're going to first look at the context and the chaos of Jesus' birth. So let's look at verse 1. Matthew just starts showing us, hey, it's important for you to understand when Jesus was born. He says in verse 1, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So we're told that Jesus was born in a part of the world called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was here right there. Um, So you can see uh, Jerusalem that's right there. Uh, Bethlehem is about five miles south. So Bethlehem was like a a suburb of Jerusalem, basically. Five miles south um, that you can see. That is where Jesus was born. And Matthew tells us that he was born in the days of Herod the king. Now this is really helpful for us because as it pertains to anybody who lived in this time in history, we know more about Herod than probably anybody else. We have tons of This will be like, I'll give you some PM anecdotes that the people didn't get throughout the day. But there's a guy named Josephus who's a Jewish historian, and he gave us two whole book scroll things about the life of Herod. And consequently, we know a lot about Herod and his life. And so we're going to talk about what do we know about him from the scriptures, and what do we know about him from other historical documents as well. Just a little bit of background about Herod. Um, At this time in history, Rome conquered Jerusalem, And the Roman Senate had chosen to appoint, quite surprisingly, as king of the Jews, that was his title, as king of the Jews, this guy named Herod. Now, there were a couple of reasons that Herod got appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. The first was that Herod was half-Jewish. And so the Roman citizens sort of thought politically, him being somewhat ethnically Jewish would uh, appease the Jewish people that he was meant to reign and rule over. The second reason that they appointed him as king of the Jews was because they knew that Herod was more loyal to them uh, than he was to his own people. Herod loved power. We're going to talk all about this. He was a bloodthirsty dude, and he knew Rome was more powerful than the Jewish people, and consequently, if Rome and the Jews were coming up against odds with one another, they knew that the king of the Jews would side with them as opposed to his own people. So, He has been appointed king of the Jews in history. Verse 1 continues and says this, Behold, wise men. Now, wise men would have been pagan priests, philosophers from the east, we're told. We think probably from Persia. Um, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, don't raise your hand, but think about this. Anybody here know anybody who has a nasty habit of saying something wildly inappropriate and offensive?" about somebody else in the room and they don't really realize they're saying something inoffensive about the person in the room. You know anybody like that? You just go to a grimace when they open their mouth. You're like, man, you're about to offend that person. You're not even gonna know it. If you don't know somebody like that, you now do. Their name is the wise men because they are saying something that is not very socially aware. Their social IQ is not very high because they say to Herod, king of the Jews, we're gonna see like this dude would do anything to maintain his status as king of the Jews. They say to Herod, king of the Jews, hey, where's the real king of the Jews? Where was the real king of the Jews been born? Um, now, Herod is not pumped about this. But we're going to see this as you can just imagine right in the room grimacing and being like, you do not know this guy. You don't say that to Herod. It says, okay, why are they saying this? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, it was customary in this day for major astronomical events and particularly astronomical anomalies be interpreted through the lens of major cultural transitional moments, particularly as it pertains to politics. And so these guys, we don't know what their belief system was, but it probably uh, involves some element of looking at the stars and interpreting what are the stars telling us. And there are these major cosmological events unfolding, particularly the star that's this anomaly astronomically where they um, are like, okay, something significant is happening in Jerusalem. The king of the Jews has been born we need to go figure out who it is um, that he is. Now, verse 3, look at this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The word troubled there does not really capture the emotion that he was feeling. It was something more than that. The original language used by Matthew is "etarachfe." It just sounds like an angry word, right? It's just like etirakfe. Like he, he was angry. He was upset. He was deeply, deeply, internally In turmoil, um, and this is the first hint that we receive that we should be deeply concerned about Herod and his character, because you would think the king of the Jews would be pumped about the arrival of the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah, and instead he is troubled, he's angry, and we should be like, I think this dude's shady. That's where we should be at this point. This dude seems a little bit shady. Okay, he's going to get shadier. Verse 4. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them to where the Christ was to be born. Now, this is an important anecdote as well because it reflects to us about the character of Herod is Herod was king of the Jews for political motivations as opposed to spiritual motivations. This question that he's asking, it's not like common knowledge, it's not like every single one of us in this room should be like, oh yeah, I know in Micah it says that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, but if you're king of the Jews, you're supposed to know the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. You're supposed to know it to such a degree that you know really basic information, like where is the guy who's going to put the world back together again? Where is he going to be born? It just goes with the knowledge, or it's just knowledge that goes with having that title. It'd be like if you sell appointed yourself as the biggest Taylor Swift fan in the world, but that you couldn't like name one of her albums. You'd be like, I don't think you're the biggest Taylor Swift fan in the world. And you'd also say to uh, Herod, I don't think you're really king of the Jews, at least not for spiritual reasons. And so he has to ask the people who basically have the information, okay, where's this guy supposed to be born? You can imagine them almost rolling their eyes and being like, I cannot believe this dude. Like, I cannot believe he's our king. Okay, we'll tell you. And I feel like, I don't know, like, we don't know the tone. I'm reading sarcasm into this. I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you why I think that They told him, verse five, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So they're like, look, you should know this, okay? Like, so does the prophet, they're quoting the Old Testament, Micah here, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, that's sketchy, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And even if you don't know, even if you don't read read ahead, or even if you've never read this story before, hopefully what we've looked at already from the text is we should be like, I don't feel like you're going to worship him. That just doesn't feel like that's what you're going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. This is deeply concerning, and I'm I'm really concerned about what's going to go on here. So where this, really, this concern is really manifested and amplified is when we understand who Herod is from, historical, from external historical documents as well. We could talk, again, we have a lot of documentation about the life of Herod, but I'm going to kind of limit myself to just talking about two aspects of Herod's life. Um, that we, we know from history. The first is, is that Herod was remarkably uh, powerful. He was very, very incredibly powerful. Really, in a lot of ways, he did deserve the title of Herod the Great. I'll just give you a few examples. The first is, is Herod created a city. Um, you know, some of you have maybe, maybe a few of you have gone through the process of like building a home, and that's like a life altering event. Like when somebody like, in our church builds a home, it's like it takes them like a year of their life, and it's almost like it's hard for them to do anything else. Herod built a city. Um, here's here's what it what it looked like. It's called uh, Caesarea. It's still around today. This is what it looked like in its he- heyday. It's, it was the largest. I mean, think about this: like almost nothing here, and then boom, city. Um, And it becomes like the largest port city in that region of the world, not even close. Uh, Also, the fact that he named it Caesarea is a reflection of where Herod's true loyalties lied. He wanted to suck up to the Caesar of the day, the guy who was in charge of Rome, so he quite cleverly named the city Caesarea. Very clever. Herod would be like, if you're trying to impress me and you named your new house Bryantopia or something like that, I'd be like, thanks, I'm flattered, I guess. Um, So anyways, Caesarea, that's what he decides to go with. Secondly about Herod, he was uh, archaeologically and technologically innovative in a way that it's hard for even modern historians to really wrap their minds around. I'll give you all sorts of examples, but I'll just give you one. Some of you might have heard of the story of Masada. It's a fort in the middle of the desert, and it was actually constructed by Herod. It was a fort, but it was also sort of a retreat center, and there's a lot of things. Here's, here's what it would have uh, looked like. Like, that. it was in a mountain, and it was stunning, and it was stunning for so many different reasons. Just one of them is that Masada had within it a bathhouse. It was like, well, you know, no retreat center is... Complete without a bathhouse, so he puts a bathhouse in there. That's already stunning because it's like in the middle of the desert 2,000 years later. But here's the thing that's particularly mind-blowing about it. Not only was it a bathhouse, but it was a bathhouse with hot and cold water. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I would love hot and cold water today. Um, I would love to take a hot shower today. And um, yeah, well, Herod had it in the middle of the desert 2,000 years ago. That's the type of power it influence that a guy like Herod had, as well as we know about Herod that he had approximately a half million, 500,000 or so people on his payroll, which is about the number that uh, Amazon employs globally today. So when you talk about Herod, very powerful, um, you know, very, very influential leader in his day. He was no small-time anecdote footnote in, um, in his day. He really was shaping that region of the world. Now, we said that Herod was incredibly powerful. The other thing that we know about Herod is that he was incredibly crazy. This dude was flat out just bonkers. And I'll just give you a few reasons for this. Um, Herod had 11 wives and 43 children. So you think you got drama? You think you got relationship drama? Herod had relationship drama. And um, it led to him being tremendously paranoid and uh, making all sorts of weird decisions. One of the things he was really afraid of um, well, one thing he actually killed his favorite wife because he was so like felt so threatened by her. That's not very cool. But he also was always threatened by his kids as well. And so uh, one time he gathered two of his sons that he was particularly paranoid that were kind of plotting to kill him and take his throne. Uh, he brought them in, and he had them uh, do a debate. But the stakes of this debate were not just winning and losing, but whoever won the debate declaring their loyalty uh, for Herod would uh, actually be gifted the gift of life. They would continue to get to live, and the loser would die. So Herod listens to the debate between his two sons. He gets to the end of it, and he's like, neither of you really made compelling points. We're just going to murder both of you. And he did. They both died. Um, Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm still going, okay? So uh, I got more of these. Uh, um, there's another story of Herod where he uh, called down a high priest who um, was a very powerful leader of the day. And Herod, again, was very paranoid about his power being taken away. So he called the high priest over to his place for a pool. Herod had a pool. I know a lot of us are like, man, I would love a pool. And Herod had a pool. You wouldn't want to hang out at Herod's pool because he murdered people at that pool all the time. And the high priest was one of the examples of this where he asked the high priest if he wanted to play like a kind of a water polo type of game. And the historical documents tell us that things got a little bit rough quote-unquote, so, something like that, and uh, it led into the, uh, the, the high priest being drowned. A Very rough game of, of water polo. Um, also, some of you are like, do I laugh at this? Does that make me a bad human being? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just telling you stories. So whatever, however the Spirit leads you, okay? Um, and uh, I'll give you one more. Uh, one of the things about Herod was he knew how much his people hated him, and consequently he knew that when he died... They would be uh, really, really uh, happy. They they would not be mourning his death, and the thought of him, um, or the thought of the Jews rejoicing at his death, made him so angry that he was like, "Well, I can't make them weep for me, but I can make them weep when I die." So he hatched this plan to uh, fill a stadium full of people and then murder them all, so there would be this sort of architected uh, national tragedy. So at least people would be grieving and sad. That would coincide with his death. And uh, it didn't work, fortunately, but it just sort of showed the way that he was thinking, the type of guy that we are dealing with. Um, Caesar uh, Augustus, the uh, the emperor of Rome at the time said about uh, Herod, he said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And he said this because Jews didn't eat pork, and he was basically saying that his own child, Herod's own child, had a greater chance of being slaughtered and eaten in the home of Herod than one of Herod's pigs. Again, aren't you excited for the Hallmark movie on Herod's life? You're like, just to meet the right girl and everything to be turned around for him, right? And um, <laughs> so, okay, so that's some of the background of what's going on with Herod, and we'll talk about why does that really inter- intersect with our lives today here in a second, but I'm just more trying to set up the context that, that Jesus really did choose to be born. God really did choose to step out of heaven into history, in the context of the darkest of days. Like, it's really bad. It is really bad um, in the environment in which God chooses to be born in a manger. And we'll, we'll talk about why that's particularly good news here in a second. Let me finish off this portion of the text. I'm actually going to talk more about verses 9 through 12 uh, at the Christmas Eve service um, and talk more about the wise men. But I'll just briefly kind of let you know what happens here. So we'll talk about the invasion of hope. Um, so what we see is the wise men follow the star to where Jesus has been born, and um, they not only rejoice in the presence of Jesus. The text says, if you look at this, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is a lot of joy. It's like Matthew doesn't know how to describe. He's like, there's a crap ton of joy in this place, right? But he's like a biblical author, so he can't say that. And so it's like, there's a lot of joy. Like, they were really, really excited. And already, this stunning paradox is being... Stunning and tragic paradox, I would add, is being raised of the the bizarre way that the wise men, the pagan priests, are responding to Jesus as opposed to the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews, who's supposed to be pumped about the Messiah, is angry at the Messiah, and is hatching this plan to murder the Messiah. And these pagan priests, like, think about this. Their entire lives up to this point have been propagating a belief system, a worldview that is totally contrary to Christianity, and yet they come into the presence of the baby Christ, and they bend the knee and worship and all. And it's already what's being anticipated in the life of Jesus that is a lot of times, and the really good news of this is a lot of times it's been the least likely people who are able to see Jesus for who he really is. A lot of times what happens is it's the religious people, it's kind of the people that are proximate. to to Jesus, like, are near, are religious, have that cultural sort of system of religiosity that can't think of Jesus for who he really is, and it's the people who are the least likely in the world um, who come in, and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, and they bend the knee in submission and awe. And really, we see this already at the birth of Jesus. Herod hates Jesus. The pagan priests love him. Verse 11 says, "And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Stunning scene. And not only that, but they proceeded to give him gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, precious metals, precious fragrances that have been reserved for royalty in this day. And what they're proclaiming in this moment is, uh, it's almost like everything we believed up to this point was wrong. Like everything we probably, you know, I mean, they had to have, Done very well for themselves. Even have resources like this. Like everything we believed, everything we were propagating, everything we held to was wrong. We worship you. We love you. Um, We want to follow you. We want to believe you. We want to obey you. And um, yeah, we'll talk more about that on on Christmas Eve. So that's the trailer for that. All right. Third. All right. Let's ask the question then: How is then love magnified uh, against the backdrop of tragedy? How is love magnified against the backdrop of tragedy. So two things here. We said this at the beginning. There's a remarkable challenge, there's a remarkable comfort. Now the challenge is this, is that for all of us, before we write off Herod as being a monster, which he is, like I'm I'm not debating that, right? Like of all the people who have ever lived, I don't know if this is the most tolerant thing to say, of all the people who ever lived, Herod is one of the worst. Like he's just a terrible human being, and we'll see that quite objectively historically next week in particular. But before we rush to a place where we Right off, Herod is a monster. We have to do the heart level work and to be self aware to ask ourselves the question as to whether or not the same sin that drove Herod to his actions is a sin that indwells my heart and yours as well. Because again, maybe our behaviors are not as explicit and as violent as Herod's, at least I hope not. But the same sin that drove Herod could drive us as well. And what was the sin underneath Herod? It was a desire to reign and rule over Jesus as opposed to humbly bend the knee to him in submission and awe and obedience. That was the problem of Herod. And he took really crazy extreme measures to try to put him to death. But a lot of us, we want to do the exact same thing where rather than in awe, instead of coming to the presence of Jesus and rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, and bending the knee, we will try all sorts of ways, all sorts of clever ways to reign and rule over Jesus. And so even in our own culture today, you know, Denver's this interesting city where most people are not opposed to Jesus as long as he aligns with, um, like, everything that they kind of already held to be true. I don't know who said this. Sorry, this is a little PM special, but somebody said, if you, um, gosh, I might butcher this as I go, let me, okay. Um, Somebody said once, how's that for a quote? Somebody said once, That if you only accept the things about Jesus you already accepted, if you only dismiss the things about, or if you reject the things about Jesus you already rejected, what you are functionally worshiping is not Jesus, but actually yourself. Does that make sense? Nobody said, okay. So let me try it again. Um, If you come to Jesus and you only accept the things about him that you were already accepting... And you reject the things about him that you already rejected. You understand, like it's not his worldview that is trumping your own. You're trying to fit him into a box, and you're trying to reign and rule over him, as opposed to bending the knee in submission and all and obedience to him. This was the sin of Herod. And what we do a lot of times when we come to Jesus, man, I'm pro-Jesus. I love Jesus. I like the parts of Jesus that are already aligned with my preferences and my desires and what's comfortable for me and my lifestyle and my worldview. But in the moment where Jesus comes and he challenges the areas of our lives where it's not convenient or easy or culturally popular to, uh, to obey, what we'll do is we'll do all sorts of weird stuff in order for us to be able to continue to reign and rule over Jesus as opposed to have him reign and rule over us. And so we'll do is we'll try to silence him. We'll try to ignore him. We'll try to reinterpret him. We'll do all these sorts of biblical interpretive gymnastics and be like, he didn't mean what he clearly said. The Bible doesn't teach what it clearly teaches. And as he pushes in on these areas of life that are sensitive and difficult and hard, I'm not trying to be dismissive of that reality, but areas of our life like how we use our time and our money and our priorities and our calling and our job and our career and our sexuality, a lot of times we don't want to believe and follow Jesus. We want to reinterpret Jesus. We want to silence Jesus. We want to reign and rule over Jesus because we didn't really come for a king. We came for somebody to self-help us and already to affirm what we already believed. That's the sin of Herod. That's the sin of Herod, and that's not worship. That's not worship. That's not what God called us to do. And we need to learn from the, from the example of the wise men who are wa- willing to lose everything. They're willing to lose everything to believe and follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was an early 1900s uh, German theologian, he said this, he said, Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child of the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. Now there's also with this not just a challenge but a comfort that comes with this as well. And the comfort is twofold in nature, Jesus' proximity and Jesus' victory, Jesus' proximity and Jesus' victory. Now, as we talk about Jesus' proximity, what we see in the birth of Jesus is Jesus willing to be proximate, that is to come near, that is to identify with the brokenness of the human experience. Now, where this should start to stun us is when you think about how bizarre God's choice to incarnate in this context is Uh, as opposed to our own kind of cultural ethos today. Now think about this just from a, kind of take spirituality out of this a little bit. Just think about this very plainly from a cultural standpoint. It is expected that if you're somebody of power, of means, of privilege, um, for you to use that power and means of privilege to stay as far away from brokenness as possible, right? Like think about that. Like think if you were going to buy a house. Think if you were going to rent an apartment and you were sitting down with a, a broker or a real estate agent or whatever it might be. Typically they're finding out how much money do you have so that you can into the good part of town and avoid the part, bad part of town, isn't it? And like, not only is that like recommended, it's sort of like, how else would you think other than that? Okay, underlying all of that is this cultural presupposition that if you have power, if you have means, if you have influence, if you have money, use that stuff to stay as far away from brokenness as possible. Now, here's the thing. How beautifully bizarre is it that God, the most powerful being, the totality of the universe, the richest wealthiest, most powerful, influential being in the cosmos chooses to move into history in kind of the worst place. He moved into like the worst neighborhood at the worst time to move into that neighborhood. That's what God's doing. That's what he sovereignly is choosing to do, and it's not an accident. You understand that? It's not like God didn't realize, you know, it's not like in the year zero, God was like, man, if only Zillow had been around now, I could have known um, what that neighborhood was like in Bethlehem, and I could have known, you know, if there was Twitter, I could have looked on my newsfeed and seen that Herod was a monster, and I never would have had my son be born in that context. You know, he's outside of time, so he knows what's happening everywhere. And God, in his sovereign freedom, chooses to step out of heaven into history to be exposed vulnerably in a manger, taking on human flesh in the, one of the worst political regimes in the history of the world. One of the worst political regimes in the history of the world. That's the reason I spent all that time historically dirty down on you. It's for this moment right now where you're like, man, that is crazy. Your response is not making me feel validated, but it's okay. It's okay. Like, I, I believe in the power of the gospel and the power of historical facts as well. So and we're like, yeah, that's crazy. Okay, okay, why? Why is that so impactful? Why does that intersect with our stories to such a degree? Because what it is, is a declaration, is that for us, God is willing to, as we are experiencing brokenness, as we are experiencing uh, the, the, the fallout and the practical ramifications of doing life in a broken and fallen world, that our God will not stand far off, but actually draw near and enter into the brokenness. More than that, actually the good news of the gospel is not only that God draws near and is willing to incarnate historically in the context of great societal, systemic, social injustice, but actually to take even a step further is that our God is only willing to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of the death and take on that brokenness, but he is even willing to be broken in our place for us so that we might be made whole. That even from the cradle, Jesus had the cross in mind and what's being set up already. You know, this is, this is the problem with an overly sentimentalized posture of Christmas that dismisses all the darkness that surrounded the first Christmas historically. It's almost like around Christmas there's this cultural expectation for you to pretend that like this is the most magical place in the world to live. And for any of you who are sick and for any of you who are experiencing heartbreak and for any of you who are experiencing pain, you're like, it doesn't doesn't feel like the most magical time of year. It feels really painful. Yeah, that's called depravity. It's called sin. It's called sin impacting the totality of the cosmos. And biblically, Christmas is not about dismissing your experience of the world being broken or telling you, hey, could you take a month and not talk about bad things because we're trying to have some hallmark moments here, okay? Push it deep down. Just push it deep down and don't think about how much pain you're in. But instead, Christmas, the first Christmas, is an affirmation of our pain. The first Christmas is an affirmation that the world is not the way that it's meant to be. And God doesn't stand far off, but actually comes near and incarnates in the darkest of days. And as we said continually throughout our Exodus series, and it's in the context of the darkest of days, where the God of light shines the brightest. That's what's being anticipated when Jesus chooses this historical moment to enter into the human story. But not only his proximity, but also his victory as well. Now, basically what's being set up here and what we're anticipating for next week is um, it's almost like, you know when like two uh, boxers finally agree to a fight and they're going to be on pay-per-view and it's like, okay, in six months... Um, Pacquiao is going to fight Mayweather, wh- whoever it is, that's going to fight, and then there's just like a million ads. Like you just can't get beyond it because it's like, oh, okay, this, this major title fight is going to happen. You, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, okay. Because this illustration wouldn't work very well if you were like, I've never heard of boxing. So, um, <laughs> um, so basically, what Matthew has done in constructing this story is saying, okay, um, a, a fight is coming. The king has declared war on the baby. That's what's being told. Like, okay, a king, the most powerful king in this region, has declared war on this baby. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest with this. Let's imagine you back to the future of this thing, and you hop in the DeLorean, you go at 88 miles per hour, you go back to where, and all this stuff is going on, and I give you $1,000, and I'm like, okay, here's the title fight. Uh, Herod versus baby Jesus in a manger. Who do you think going to win? Who do you think going to win? Herod, right? Like, don't say Jesus. Like, that's churchy. Don't say that. They'll be like, yeah, I would have said Jesus. Like, I'm the only one saying Jesus. You wouldn't have been the only one saying Jesus. Nobody would say Jesus, right? Like, nobody would say Jesus. You'd be like Herod, because how in the world does, like, a baby beat Herod? Like, there's no way that Herod Herod wins. And yet, you know what the beauty of having 2,000 years of hindsight is? Is we know who wins, don't we? Right? Like, Like, think about this for a second. I know that Denver's a city where there's all this wide diversity of belief systems and worldviews. Anybody in this room um, know anybody who's a Herod worshiper? Anybody have any Herod worshippers in their lives? Anybody grow up going to Herodian school when they're a kid? (laughs) Like, did did any of of you even know these, like, little historical anecdotes about Herod? Like, I didn't until I just read books about them this past week. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, as this unlikely, ragged group of people gathering together in the evening in Denver, Colorado, worshipping the name of Jesus. Isn't that amazing historically how Jesus wins over Herod? That even from the cradle, the victory of Jesus is in mind? Man, isn't that amazing news? Is God wins. Like, he always wins. And circumstantially, and there's moments in history where a lot of times it does seem like the darkest of days. And a lot of times in those moments, it feels like God is off the throne. Like, I know probably some of you don't want to say that out loud. I'm going to say it out loud for you with the microphone in the middle of church. There's a lot of moments where you just, like, the people of God are asking the question. Does God care? Does he see me? Does he see my pain? Does he see this cultural moment? Does he see what's going on? Is he powerful enough to do something about this? Why is he delaying? There's these restless, soul-terrifying questions. We all ask in the moments, both culturally and individually, that are the darkest of days. And yet what we're already seeing is a retelling to the Exodus story that we'll talk about next week, that it's in the darkest of days where the God of light, he shines the brightest in an affirmation of the deepest and most frightening questions of the human soul. Yes, God's on the throne. Yes, the baby wins, even over the king. Yes, regardless of what the circumstances are telling us, the lens through which we interpret these circumstances through the victory of the gospel of Christ. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he cares for us. Yes, he will win for us. Yes, the same spirit who brought by his power all of these events to fruition. He indwells us and empowers us today as well. And consequently, we can live in light of that victory this Christmas. All right, let's pray. And then we'll do, That was like I say, a long introduction for sermon number two that'll happen next week. So I hope you'll come back next week. We'll finish off the chapter. It'll get super dark, um, but actually super hopeful as well. So um, I'm looking forward to continuing to walk through Matthew 2 with you. Let's pray, and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you so much for your uh, your kindness and your grace. And we're thankful for. Um, I'm just really thankful for Matthew being honest about the how bad things were when Jesus was born, and um, it's one of the many reasons I trust the Bible. Is um, this this is not some book that's trying to uh, paint a uh, a fantasy or a uh, a reality that's something something different? It's like Matthew's really honest. Things are really bad for the people of God in this time in history. And God, that you would choose to, to basically move into like the worst neighborhood and the worst part of time, uh, uh, time is just is amazing. Um, we're thankful that the way you think about your privilege is the different way that most of us think about our privilege. And, um, and yeah, in particular, I just want to pray for the men and women here who um, really need something more than just um, warm fuzzies this Christmas. Um, but instead, the good news that you came near and um, you drew new brokenness. You would already have from the cradle a view of the cross where you would be broken for us, and you would be victorious where, um, in the areas of our life where it just even feels like we're losing right now. Um, we love you, Jesus, and I pray we respond well now in this time. And we ask these things uh, in your name. Amen.